0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, everyone. So this is the Evolution of Infectious Disease, lecture number one. And what we are going to talk about today uh, is first an update on the ongoing pandemic. I know that this is... uh, this is a topic that everybody is thinking about nonstop. Uh, so I just wanted to address it head on first uh, in these lectures and then I'll move on to the intro- introduction of the larger course that I'm teaching right now, evolution of infectious disease. We are in the midst of a pandemic. Um, it is astonishing. We have not seen anything like this in over a hundred years. We don't know when it will end. And uh, right now we're, it's expanding all around especially the United States. So we have, in the United States, over 160,000 cases of COVID-19. This is a stat that was from last night, and so I'm sure that we have many, many more. This map was from last night, and I looked at it this morning, and California is well above 7,000 now. So this thing is expanding, it's growing exponentially, it's affecting every single one of the states in the United States, and it's affecting the entire world. I should note that as we're um, starting these lectures, I am going to try to give you the most up to date information on COVID 19. And so you'll see that a lot of the data um, that you're about to look at is actually from last night, from uh, things that people published on their websites, um, you know, that are up to date uh, bits of information. So, of course, COVID 19 is a global pandemic. Um, it is uh, it's growing in in a lot of countries luckily it's declining in some countries as well this is just a map from the new york times that shows us which countries uh is the disease spreading the fastest Uh, right now the united states is, is the fastest actually it's it's kind of off the scale of this uh this figure we are growing by tens of thousands per day not just thousands per day and um i don't know about you guys but every day i wake up and I look at the, the data to see if this uh, growth rate is beginning to decrease. So what you're looking at is a graph where the x-axis is time, and the y-axis is the number of new cases reported in the United States per day. And so for a long time, we had this slow, gradual rise of the rate of increase, and now we have you know, tens of thousands, 20,000 cases being reported, new cases, uh, each day. Um, and so uh, this is what we call exponential growth or it's nearly exponential growth and uh, throughout the course um, I will describe the math behind exponential growth, how it works, um, and why this is so dangerous uh, for society to be experiencing uh, a virus that can, that can expand and spread its range uh, so quickly. So while things are very dark, um, there, are, there is possibly some hope in the near future that things are going to calm down and things are even going to calm down in the United States where this disease is spreading so quickly. So you know, if you just kind of squint your eyes and fit a curve to this plot, you could maybe convince yourself that things are beginning to plateau. Although I could also fit a, a linear uh, function to this showing that they're just increasing. But there is some reason to think that we're near the peak and that um, ca- the number of cases is going to subside. Okay, so this is actually uh, a data analysis by one of my friends, Robert Beermore, over in the UK. And um, what he is pointing out is that the pandemic or the epidemics in each of these countries um, actually they tend to show a less than exponential. Spread so everybody's talking about exponential spread, and we'll get into the actual the math and the the science behind exponential spread. But it, note that it's just very very bad. Um, and what he is showing in this plot actually is that, and this is just a brand new paper that's that's just um, freely available on GitHub. And what he's showing is that actually most of the countries that have had COVID nineteen for a while have um, are the the rate at which COVID-19 is spreading um, is actually below exponential. And that rate is decreasing through time. So the y-axis is deaths per day, per capita, and the x-axis is days. So that's uh, progression and that's days since the first death reported in the country caused by COVID-19. Um, and let's not worry too, too much about what the y-axis says, just a higher value on the y-axis is, is worse off. Um, but, the way that you read this graph is that if you have exponential growth with this um, transformation on the y-axis, it would give you a, just a straight line um, across the graph. So just a straight line across here. Um, if, if you, but if you don't have exponential growth, if you're actually expanding uh, less than exponential and so relatively um, slow for what the, the virus could possibly be doing, then you have these, these slopes that go down. And of course, we know China is a, is a great example where um, we know that, the, that they had a terrible outbreak. It spread like crazy. Um, and then they, use, uh, they, they all uh, quarantined themselves, in, especially in, in regions that were hotspots. Uh, they did a lot of testing. They quarantined people that they knew were infected. They looked at the network of people that they interacted with and quarantined those people and um, they got the, got the um, local epidemic in China under control. And so that's the pattern that, that you know, we want every country to, to have um, and that we want the, the globe to have as well. And so one problem though with this pattern is that this is the line for the United States and you see that it, it does not have a sloping um, pattern. It, it is much more flat. Um, If if you do the analysis, so that's what these numbers are here for, this section of the graph, and and I should let you know that I love data. (laughs) I'm a scientist, and so a lot of this class is just going to be looking over these data, the data directly from papers um, and interpreting them and understanding what's going on. Um, And so, uh, and some of the... Data that you'll be seeing uh, in the COVID-19 section are so raw and so new that you know some of the figures will be actually hard to read because they haven't actually been published and perfected for journals. But these are just scientists trying to get this data out as fast as possible. Okay. So uh, this is these are just telling us um, you know, what line is associated with which country. Uh, and then these deltas, this is just how different the growth rate is compared to an exponential growth rate. So exponential is like as fast as you possibly could grow. And how different is this pattern uh, compared to exponential? And so what you see here is that uh, the United States does in fact have um, some delta, some some slowing down, it's negative, so some slowing down of the growth rate uh, compared to exponential, but actually compared to the other countries, uh, we're not doing as well. Our number is much, much, much lower. So, hopefully, in the near future, um, you know, just a few weeks ago, we really started to uh, practice social distancing, and this, nu- this line will begin to fall down just like the rest of the countries. So, the other thing that um, Rod Beermore um, did is that he actually created a uh, mathematical model, and later in the, the term, we will go over the math that underlies predictions. For the number of mortalities during an epidemic and whether or not an epidemic will spread. Uh, these are called the SIR models. Um, so don't, don't worry about the details now, but you will like, um, learn them later on. But he then made predictions based on uh, fitting, fitting these models to the, the data. And so what he's plotting here now, and sorry, this is, you know, there's a lot of overlap in and, and the, and the labels here. Um, but what he has on the x-axis is days so in cumulative deaths so this is the number of deaths caused by COVID-19 in all of these various countries and so the points are actual data and then the lines are his mathematical predictions and so the the encouraging part of these predictions is that he actually thinks that there's going to be many many fewer deaths um, than many of the Um, than many of the classic mathematical models uh, predict. Uh, So yesterday on the news, uh, Trump said something about 100,000 to 200,000 deaths in the United States. And actually, if his models are correct, it's going to be um, just thousands to maybe tens of thousands and not hundreds of thousands. So all of these mathematical models make assumptions, and it's really hard to know which one is actually correct. All of these models predict that um, things like social dis- distancing and quarantining are important to keep these numbers down. And so this prediction here is um, uh, with the fact that we are socially distancing ourselves and we are quarantining ourselves. and We are taking lots of precautions not to spread COVID-19. Um, you can look at all of these um, uh Different trajectories are for different countries. Um, We're pretty high up there. Uh, Other countries are predicted to have more more mortality. Um, And um, yeah, I don't know. This is is just a little bit of encouraging uh, news that the the mortality, the the number of deaths, uh, might not be as high as we first thought. Okay, there's other really encouraging news as well. Um, and so this is uh, data just from last night um, on, it's this really interesting uh, device uh, instead of data and actually company. So this is, um, this is a thermometer here. Uh, this is a smart thermometer that connects to the internet uh, and it sends data to Kinza Health. Uh, and so they've designed these smart thermometers and uh, people all over the country have these smart thermometers and are regularly taking their temperatures um, and so for I think they 've been using these thermometers for a couple years and um, the they have algorithms that are smart and can figure out you know what are sort of normal patterns of increases in you know, the average person's body temperature and decreases in the average person's body temperature. And so during flu season, there's a, there's a very typical rise in people's temperature and then a decline in people's temperature. And, and so they keep really great data on this and they have very good mathematical models uh, or um, learning algorithms um, that allow them to be able to um, predict what is normal. And so when they see the real life data uh, being abnormal, then they know something has changed. Maybe there's a new virus like COVID-19 um, caused by SARS-CoV-2 spreading around the United States. And so um, let's start over here at this data and then I'll tell you what this graph is showing us and I'll tell you why it's it's all very positive. Um, okay, so during a typical flu season, you have you have data that are would follow this kind of trend here. So this is the expected line, and you can see the observed up to this point fall right along the expected line. So everything was going normal, people were getting the normal flu and having um, uh, higher temperatures, um, and it was all, this flu season was was behaving just like it normally does. Then, once we began to have this COVID-19 outbreak, We saw massive deviations um, from what was expected. And so that makes sense. We have a new virus and lots of people are catching it and um, their temperatures are, the virus causes a fever and so their temperatures are being raised. And then what is really encouraging um, is that our social distancing and all the struggle that we're going through is actually having a real effect on this data here. So I think that this data is sort of the first, it's, a, it's the canary in the coal mine, but in the in a good direction um, that, uh, you know, things that we're doing are changing, um, our behaviors are actually working. And so the, the percent of people that are ill that have high temperatures is actually plummeted. Um, and so what this is telling you is that our social distancing is probably having two effects. It's beginning to influence the spread of COVID-19 and hopefully slow it down, but it also is probably inhibiting uh, the spread of normal influenza, and so actually fewer people in general are getting are getting fevers. Uh, so we'll see what happens with this data. Uh, it's a little early to, to interpret it, and I probably just overinterpreted it, but um, we'll keep an update on this and, and see what it tells us. It's really fascinating. It's really cool to see that you know we could all change our behaviors and have such a dramatic effect you know this is nationwide um, and so what this map is showing us here is just um, it's a seven day trend of illness and we can see that it's decreasing um, around around the the United States so st- social distancing is really having effect it's probably probably actually not just li- limiting covid nineteen but limiting influenza and other viruses that uh, would cause us to have fevers, so that's really encouraging. I looked at this map about a week ago and it was bright red um, or maybe a little bit longer than a week ago, but you know recently, and it was bright red uh, so this is this is really good news. okay, so the other you know bit of real time data that we're getting is uh, data from GIS aid um, and this is a Uh, group that collects genomic data. Um, It collects it for lots of different viruses, lots of different diseases, Um, but it's collecting a ton, thousands and thousands of genomic sequences of SARS-CoV-2. So I'm trying to be careful, and when I use the phrase SARS-CoV-2, that's the strain of virus that is spreading around the globe. The actual disease is called COVID-19. So just like HIV um, causes the disease AIDS, SARS-CoV-2 causes the disease COVID-19. In the the next lecture, I will go over a lot more about, you know, what are coronaviruses, what is SARS, what is SARS-CoV-2, and so that you you sort of have a larger, a a better framework to understand what's going on. Um, But for now, I just want to sort of glance over some data and point you in directions of really cool websites and real-time data so that you can begin to track this stuff on your own. And I also want to just sort of entice you with showing you figures and showing you types of data that you might be really confusing to you right now, but by the end of this course, you'll absolutely be able to look at these, know, know what kind of algorithms produce them, uh, know what this, this means and um, and really understand how to interpret it, and and even help inform other people about this stuff. Okay, so this is uh, genomic data. So this is one of the first epidemics where, in real time, we have advanced sequencing, DNA sequencing, and RNA, uh, DNA sequencing technology um, uh, that allows us to uh, rapidly sequence whole genomes of, of SARS, and um, then upload that data and this data gets uploaded and this um, this group uh, nextstrain.org analyzes the data almost immediately and then uh, makes all of these different plots that we can learn about the evolution of this disease and the spread of this disease around the globe. Um, so if you're interested, definitely go to nextstrain.org. They have lots of ways to interact with this data and to look at things. Um, and you'll see here, this is not a video, but on their website, you can hit play. And what it does is it shows you exactly how this disease spread around the globe. And that, the way they're able to figure that out was by constructing this phylogeny. Here, this is just, a, uh, you could think of this as, this is, these are evolutionary relationships. Um, you can also think of this as just kind of like a family tree. Of viruses. So each of these points is a different virus, and the connections of, between the points describe how they're related to one another. Okay, so uh, we will be building phylogenies. We will use phylogenies to be able to make maps like this. And what this is down here, you'll be looking at lots of data like this as well. Um, this is the genome of the of the virus um, lined up, uh, you know, from from the first position to the last position of the genome. And um, what this is showing us here are where are mutations occurring in the genome. Um, And this this peak here is very interesting. This is the host recognition protein. Um, You'll hear a lot about host recognition proteins because this is what I study um, in in my own research, not on coronavirus viruses, but um, other viruses. Uh, And we actually have very similar patterns sometimes where you see these big spikes in the evolution that's happening here. This means that the virus is evolving to better recognize its new host. Its new host is us. Um, That's what it suggests. I haven't looked at the data explicitly. So um, later on in the, the term, we will get more into the exact data and be able to figure out whether or not natural selection is acting on this protein or any other protein in the genome. Um, To promote its evolution and promote its adaptation to humans right now the the evidence that the virus is adapting to us is pretty slim I want to step back for a second I am very Excited about teaching this class. I'm also just excited in general about um, Just how amazing science is right now. We have all of this real-time data just streaming in and people are sharing it There's this whole revolution right now happening where, you know, all the journals uh, have um, or many of the journals are making any publication related to COVID-19 free and available to everybody. People are making their data freely available as well. Normally these things are kind of um, people hold on to their data so they can write their paper first um, or people or journals try to make money off of um, publications. And so they, they put up a paywall behind uh, their articles. But right now, all of this stuff is freely available. The New York Times has dropped its paywall so that uh, for COVID-19 related subjects, so that people can look at these plots, even if they don't have a subscription. Uh, this All of this information sharing is really powerful. And it's really going to transform the way that we do science. And it's amazing to be able to watch this Pandemic unfold and get all of this data and learn from it and in real time react to it and hopefully it helps us um, Stop the spread of this pandemic so I'm just really excited that um, People have come together at least scientists in such a great way um, uh, To share all these resources So that's what scientists are doing. So what should you be doing right now? Um, And so I just wanted to reinforce this uh, you have to stay home. Um, You have to limit the amount of interactions that you have with other people. That is going to save lives. That's going to hopefully stop you from being very ill. So please, please, please stay at home. That's the most effective way to deal with this pandemic right now. Um, And I have, um, I would suggest also with the knowledge that you're learning from this course, remind people why it's important to stay at home. Um, and, you know, politely remind them nobody likes to be nagged. Um, But I do find myself kind of in a reverse position with my parents where uh, as a teenager, you know, they would be telling me what to do and to stay at home and so forth. Um, And now I find myself uh, telling my parents how important it is to stay at home, not to go to the local pub and things like that. Um, So, yeah, stay at home and and encourage people to, to follow that direction. Um, I would suggest take one day at a time. This is going to be a long period where where we have to do social distancing. Um, People are talking about June. Maybe we'll have some relief in the summer because of the climate being warmer and um, the virus not being able to spread as well. But we actually don't know that yet. Um, And so we might have some relief in the summer. It seems that the, the major surge of the pandemic in the United States will peak probably mid-April and then hopefully drop back down. But even when this pandemic drops back down, um, we're not going to be able to just immediately start life up again. Um, We'll have to sort of take inch by inch measures to to sort of step outside of our house a little bit, maybe go to work when there's not so many people there. Um, I think in my lab, once things calm down a little bit, we will have people come back into the lab. Right now it's shut down. But we'll have them work in shifts so they don't overlap with each other. We're not sure exactly what will happen, but at the moment, we have to take one day at a time, prepare mentally for a long haul of uh, social distancing, and learn how to be adaptive, Um, learn how to use Zoom and things like that. So I'm very sorry about all of this, but it's critical to, to stop the spread of this pandemic. And I also want to say, study hard and stay focused. Uh, I've been working very hard and it's kept my mind off of what's happening around us. And I have to say that while you know, working hard can be stressful, it's not as stressful as dealing with everything that's happening. So, you know, distract yourself, listening to these podcasts. So there's a this question in the news right now of whether or not we should shelter in, in place. The idea is that um, sheltering in place has huge economic consequences. We're not outspending money um, and we're not at work, or many of us are not at work. And so what that means is that we're really hurting our economy and having a bad economy can have really bad side effects as well. And so what I want to convince you of right now is that is a false dichotomy. That actually, if we don't shelter in place and this pandemic gets out of control in the United States, our economy is going to be much worse off than if we do shelter in place. Sure, we don't spend as much money. Um, hopefully people uh, can maintain their lives and their jobs, and uh, the government is helping out with that right now. Um, but the ram- the ramifications of if we let this pandemic get out of control uh, are much worse off. And so I this is what people have been saying for a while. It's the alternative argument against this you know, oh, we should should not shelter in place idea. Um, But there's actually data that we can look to that support this claim. Okay, so you might've heard about the 1918 flu pandemic. Uh, Usually I talk about this later in the class. Uh, We have a a lecture on influenza. Um, And uh, I just wanna sort of give a brief little uh, intro to it right here. So this is mortality rate per 100,000 people uh, on the y-axis and on the x-axis, we have years. Um, and so a long time ago, life was a lot rougher. People died of infectious diseases at a much higher rate. And we get modern medicine, and so people are not dying from infectious diseases as much. We have better medicine but and better hospital care. Certainly the, the advent of antibiotics and, um, and also vaccines help, this, help drop this number down a lot. But you can see this incredible spike around 1918. This was the last pandemic that we experienced at this scale, Uh, and there was just an incredible increase of mortality caused by that influenza strain. So 100 years ago is very different than life is now, but I think we can use uh, how people responded to that pandemic to learn a little bit about this current pandemic. And so I'm not the only one that thinks this, actually this guy, Uh, Emil Werner uh, thought this before I did. Uh, He's an MIT professor, economist. um, And they looked back at data on which states within the United States um, responded to this pandemic by sheltering in place versus which cities didn't do social distancing. Um, And then they saw um, whether or not that affected their uh, rate of mortality, and yes, it certainly did. If you sheltered in place, you had fewer people that were sick and fewer people that died. Um, and then the last the last thing they did, though, is they said, well, the cities that sheltered in place, did their economy suffer more or less than the cities that didn't shelter in place? And what they found is actually that the cities that sheltered in place, um, they had less mortality And the changes in employment were not as bad. What I want to say here is that uh, the X axis are the mortalities and the Y axis are um, changes in employment. Um, And uh, the way that you can interpret this is that higher values are good and lower value values are, are bad. Um, And so What it's showing here, you have these different cities, okay? Um, And the cities are labeled red and green. The green ones are the ones that actually did shelter in place, and the red ones are the ones that did not respond as well. Uh, And so what we see is that there is sort of a clustering of green over here and a clustering of red over there, Uh, and then there's this overall relationship where cities that were hit the hardest also, the, their empl- the change in employment, so the drop in employment, uh, was the hardest. I actually grew up in Pittsburgh, so it seems like my people uh, were just really stubborn and did not shelter in place and did not respond, and both the mortality rate was really high and also um, their economy really suffered around that time. Um, so yeah, so you know, it's, it's much better to respond to this. It's a, a win-win situation where our economies won't suffer as much and um, we will also uh, just have fewer people that that die from this disease. Now I'm going to start to move more towards the typical first lecture that I would give in the class. Um, And I wanna start this out by saying, should we have anticipated a global pandemic? And the answer is yes. And so these are slides I would normally give to my lecture. It's actually very depressing right now to be giving these slides. Basically, I start out my lectures by saying that we have altered the globe in ways um, that actually set up kind of the perfect petri dish for a new virus to emerge into the human population and then spread around the world. And so what are the factors that people look at and 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 are sort of the the ways that um, we have changed the globe to increase the chance of these pandemics. So the first factor is that, so I should say that where these, where new viruses come from is not that they just sort of come out of nowhere. They jump from one species to another species. So we, we know about the, the swine flu and the bird flu and now COVID-19. COVID-19 comes from bats. Swine flu and bird flu obviously come from those animals. Um, but there's lots and lots of mammals around the world and birds and other animals that um, have viruses and have a huge diversity of viruses. And um, these viruses have some potential to, to cross species and jump into the human population. Obviously it's relatively rare, and it's even rarer for a new virus to, to jump into a human population and then to begin spreading from human to human. We'll talk about how this process works in later lectures. Um, but you know, there's always a risk, and when you're interacting with animals, that this sort of this jump could happen. Now, of course, you know, we all interact with animals, um, and you you don't need to sort of change your, your life because of that. But as we, as we interact with natural areas um, in animals more and more, um, we are enhancing our chances for a virus to jump from a species like a bat to humans, just like Co- uh, SARS-CoV-2 did. Um, and so our encroachment on natural areas, the increased production of livestock, we have you know, all of these um, farms all over the world, and humans are eating more and more Uh, meat, and these farms are a reservoir for viruses that could jump into our populations. Um, And also things like the exotic animal trade. Uh, This is a way that uh, uh, animals can contribute viruses to us as well. So just our increased encroachment on nature, basically, is really enhancing the potential for these pandemics to happen. So, next, we have um, these you know, huge cities, and more and, peop- more and more people around the globe are living in cities. And um, that's a good thing. Uh, as we have more and more people on Earth, we have to live more and more efficiently. We have to use, preserve the resources that we have. We have to burn less fossil fuel. We have to use less energy. And as a whole, cities are much more efficient. However, they do have the side effect that. Um, We have in cities, we have people interacting closely with each other. We have each individual in the city encounters hundreds of other people every day. And so in these kinds of situations, we have a lot of potential for viral spread. Um, And so um, if a virus does begin to, if a virus does jump into a human population, then even if it's not very good at spreading between humans, it can get a foothold in these urban environments because there's so much opportunity for it to uh, spread from one individual to the next. Uh, and so really they can you, can, you can get these beginnings of an epidemic happening in these local cities and the virus sort of adapting to humans and beginning to spread uh, better in human populations. The third factor is that um, we have global travel. And so this is, this is also a good thing. It's good that we have uh, a global society, that we have people moving around the world. Uh, this helps with you know, just um, uh, diminishing the differences between us and, and promoting harmony on Earth. Um, but it does have this consequence that if there's a local epidemic, say in Wuhan, and people leave that area and go to other areas of the world, then they're going to spread that epidemic. Certainly, um, it's not just China. It's not just Wuhan. In the United States, we had a swine flu outbreak, I think, in 2009, um, and that spread around the world as well. It was not as deadly as as SARS is, and so we we don't uh, we weren't we didn't have to suffer as as much as we did we are right now. Um, but uh, but it can happen anywhere uh, and spread around the world, and so. Um, while, you know that certainly global travel has benefits, it has this cost as well. So those three features of how the globe is changing has really set us up for pandemics. We knew that this was a problem we had in the United States. Um, you know, pandemic teams assembled, uh, lots of different agencies have invested money. Um, I wish we were a little bit more prepared. Um, but but we did know that this was this was bound to happen at some point. So, um, what are possible solutions to these three problems? So basically, encroachment on natural areas. Um, we should preserve natural areas. We should try to stay away uh, from those forests. They have there's a lot of other benefits to not destroying natural areas besides not um, opening ourselves up to uh, to emerging diseases. Urbanization, as I said, it's really important uh, for us to live efficiently, and cities help us do that. Um, But we can design cities in better ways so that the spread of disease is at least slowed down. Um, So you know, things like automatically opening opening doors, um, so you don't have to touch door handles. You know, that's an engineering strategy that minimizes the potential for passage of pathogens from one person to the next person. And so there's lots of smart ways that we haven't even come up with uh, where we can engineer cities. So that will be a topic that we go over later um, as well, Um, how to to have smarter architecture to limit the spread of pathogens and limit their evolution. Okay, in global travel, I don't know. I mean, I think we're all beginning to learn how to live without global travel and and we're communicating through Zoom and we have these uh, lectures online. And so... Maybe we'll learn to to minimize our global travel. That will be good for the environment because we won't be producing as much carbon dioxide as well from airplanes. Um, So I think, you know, maybe we'll find ways to still have harmony, still um, have these interconnected societies that share um, knowledge and resources, um, but not have to actually physically go to as many places. Although, you know, we all love to travel and it's nice to experience cultures uh, firsthand. We, we knew that this pandemic would happen eventually and uh, I, it's it's really grim that it has happened uh, but I do think you know we'll go over ways of, of stopping it throughout this course um, so hopefully we'll 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 sort of end on a on a more positive note but before I get positive um, there are other looming crises as well that we'll talk about and so this is just a graph of a type of antibiotic resistance gene called a beta-lactamase, um, and uh, it's the spread of this gene, and what we can see is that that gene is spreading exponentially, uh, and this is happening in every country in the world, um, and so what this crisis is, it's it's much more slow than the current crisis we're going through, but basically um, bacteria are evolving antibiotic resistance, and So we're no longer able to use the medicines that we used to use to treat bacterial infections. And so there are even some cases where people are beginning to die from bacterial infections that used to be treatable. And so I think it's important that we all focus on COVID-19 right now, but there's also these other looming threats that we know are happening, just like we knew that a pandemic could possibly happen, that we need to learn about and we need to stop before they do happen. So I will go over the the evolution of antibiotic resistance and also new strategies for dealing with antibiotic resistance. So I just want to point out that these two emerging diseases and antibiotic resistance, um, at their core, they are problems caused by evolution. This virus has evolved in a way so that it can jump into human populations. Bacteria are evolving in a way so that they are no longer sensitive to the, um, medicines that we treat them with. And so really to understand two of the biggest problems that I see humans facing, certainly climate, climate change and other things are a huge problems as well, but in terms of medicine, two of the biggest problems that we're facing are being caused by the evolution of microbes. And so I want to stress how important it is for people to research the evolution of microbes and for people like yourselves to be learning about the, the evolutionary process in the context of microorganisms. Okay, so now what I wanna do is go over um, just some of the questions that we'll be uh, uh, answering with the material in this class. Um, And so one, like I just said, is we're gonna understand the antibiotic resistance um, or how antibiotic resistance evolves. Um, And so here are just two figures that maybe don't make any sense to you right now. One is a protein that mutations tend to occur in this protein that confer resistance to uh, penicillin. Um, And then the second image uh, is two bacteria sharing DNA with one another, uh, and they're sharing antibiotic resistance genes. So two mechanisms for antibiotic resistance are both mutations and horizontal gene transfer. We'll dig into those much more later in the class. We'll also talk about how viruses jump between species. Um, We actually know a lot about this in terms of Uh, Bird flu, Um, and that's what this figure is showing you is a a host recognition protein of bird flu, like that S protein that I pointed out earlier for COVID-19. And um, so this is just uh, the overall structure of influenza. This is the protein that evolves. Here's just uh, sort of zooming in on the region of the protein that's evolving. Um, And it evolves in ways so they can then attach to human cells and infect them. Uh, and so we know a lot about gain-of-function in um, influenza, and there are certainly studies on other coronaviruses, not, um, not, I don't think as many on, on SARS, and certainly not this uh, SARS-CoV-2. Um, but, but when we get to this lecture um, on uh, host jumps, I'll be sure to give you the most up-to-date information on how uh, SARS-CoV-2 spread to, spread to humans. So gain-of-function evolution is um, mainly what my lab actually works on, Um, and so if you're interested in what my lab works on, here's a New York Times article from my PhD research, uh, and here's a more recent article uh, from research at UCSD um, uh, about another professor at UCSD, uh, Katie Petrie's work. Okay, Um, so we are going to learn about evolution And we are going to apply it to many uh, problems. Um, We are, one of the ways that you can apply um, an evolutionary understanding is to be able to track the spread of diseases and to determine things like where did the disease originate? Um, What are the mechanisms uh, allowing them to spread? Uh, We can predict where they're headed uh, and we can even develop methods to stop their spread. So really understanding, you know, how they're evolving as they're spreading can help us uh, really actually begin to intervene um, in in the, uh, the the pandemic spread. We will track. We will learn about how to track um, pathogens locally, so within hospitals um, or between um, different people isolated in a single region. Um, we will also learn how to track. Um, uh, pathogens as they move around the world. Uh, this is from Nextrain. Uh, this is how the early stages of uh, SARS CoV 2 spread around the world. And we will even um, look into understanding how we can predict where epidemics are likely to emerge in the future. And so this is a plot from EcoHealth Alliance. It was published in 2017 in Nature Communications um what go, what this uh, group of researchers did is they figured out you know what are the key variables that are likely to lead to pandemics. So like we talked about um, earlier in the lect- in this lecture uh, things like human density, human interactions with biodiversity, and also um, uh, the another one that we hadn't talked about is uh, whether or not uh, people are experiencing Bad effects from climate change that could also uh, help contribute to um, uh, new emerging diseases, and so they put these variables together. They're able to measure you know, human density and biodiversity and so forth, um, and then they can make this heat map of where we expect uh, future pandemics to occur. Uh, so this is the site, obviously, of where um, uh, SARS-CoV-2 emerged from. Um, but you know, this is not you know we don't expect that. The new disease could just come from uh, from Asia, but you know we have hotspots in North America, even down here in Southern California and around New York, um, and hotspots in West Africa. This is around the region where um, two uh, uh, the 2014-2015 Ebola outbreak happened. But certainly Europe has some hotspots as well. Um, so you know it can happen in basically most of our countries. Um, It's a probabilistic thing. This is not telling you exactly where it will happen. But if we know the factors that do contribute um, to emerging diseases in the next pandemic, hopefully we can go to these regions and actually begin to intervene. So we'll talk a lot about um, emerging diseases and how to predict where they're going to happen and how to stop them. We are going to learn about how natural selection acts on viruses. um, And we're going to learn about how it can actually act to reduce the virulence of viruses. Um, in that often viruses, when they begin to infect a new species, start out as being very deadly, uh, and then they co-evolve with that species and eventually wind up uh, being much more benign. And so hopefully, you know, that is what's going to happen um, with SARS-CoV-2, that maybe the future strains of it will evolve to be less deadly um, and be something more like normal influenza or hopefully even like the common cold. Um, And so this is just a figure, don't worry about these variables, but this is an equation that we'll learn about. And it predicts that under certain circumstances, you actually get natural selection that favors less virulent pathogens and also less infectious pathogens. Um, And so hopefully the conditions are right so that future strains of COVID-2 um, will uh, be less deadly. We're gonna talk a lot about antibiotic resistance, and we're also gonna talk about uh, multi-drug resistance and that problem, um, and how we can address it using things like drug cocktails. Uh, and so this is just a life cycle of SARS-CoV, um, and uh, I just have this up here because I wanted to point out that you know we're, there's a lot of effort right now in trying to get um, new drugs that can attack this, the replication of this virus. And certainly there's going to be um, a huge rush to begin using the first drug that we get. And you know, there's some reason to do that for sure. But there's also, I mean, there's obvious reasons to to use the drug if it's effective and it doesn't have side effects. Um, But there's also reasons to be a little bit cautious. And it's that viruses like this virus um, have a relatively high mutation rate. And so if it's relatively easy for the virus to mutate and to be resistant to the, the, the therapy, um, then you know within a couple of days, you could begin to see uh, these escape mutants that can avoid the therapy and then spread, and then we, our therapy that we worked so hard to develop uh, is just not effective. So hopefully we have a couple different therapies that come online around the same time and hopefully, there's no bad interactions between those therapies, and we can use them in combination. So you'll, I'll teach you about mutation rates. I'll teach you about why drug cocktails work, based on mutation rates and how they they work. Um, and then we'll we'll think about uh, smarter designs to um, drug administration so that uh, you don't get resistance evolving. That basically we challenge the virus with too many different um, challenges at the same time, so that they can't evolve resistance. Okay, Um, um, one of the uh, lectures that a lot of students really enjoy is one that we teach about new emerging biotechnologies um, that can be used to help fight the evolution of antibiotic resistance or the evolution of pathogens in general. Um, And so this is a figure from a paper that was recently published, this is from UCSD, um, and it's this larger group um, headed by Ethan Beer and Victor Nizé. Um, and you don't have to look at this and sort of understand what's going on. This is a series of genetic elements that they put together uh, where these genetic elements, when you, when you put them into a bacterium, uh, they reverse the bacteria's ability to be antibiotic resistant. And so you can, even if you start out with antibiotic resistant bacteria, they will be resensitize the antibiotics, and then you can wipe them out with antibiotics. So it's a really effective strategy to, um, to be able to resensitize bacteria and so that we can continue to use the antibiotics that we already have. Um, so that's, that's an interesting lecture, and we'll talk about you know, the mix of biotechnology, thinking about evolution, and how to reverse evolution. Uh, one of my favorite lectures also is about using evolutionary biology to predict what future strains of influenza will look like, um, and then to be able to better develop vaccines to deal with those future strains. So basically every year when you get the, the flu shot, um, what has gone into that is people have uh, picked out a couple of influenza strains that they think will circulate in the coming year uh, and then they they make a vaccine for those influenza strains, uh, but sometimes they get that wrong. Um, and uh, the reason why they get it wrong is that influenza between the years evolved in ways that they didn't anticipate. Um, and so uh, when that happens, then we have a really bad flu season. Uh, so there's, a, there's a, a, a huge push to be able to anticipate viral evolution so that we can make things like vaccines and other treatments that are sort of one step ahead of the virus and um, are able to act on that future strain. So it's really important to be able to predict the evolutionary process. To do that, of course, you have to know about the evolutionary process and how it actually works. So the beginning of our lectures um, will be focused on understanding that evolutionary process, understanding just the, the, the sort of details of how mutation and natural selection and so forth works, and then we'll begin to apply those lessons later on in the in the lectures. Um, another reason that's really important to study the evolution of infectious diseases is that it helps us understand our own evolution. Um, and so it's not everybody knows this. Uh, it's, it is pretty widely known, though, uh, that humans... Um, uh, 8% of our genomes is actually composed of viral DNA, and that there's, there's actually some genes that we use, um, things for functions for like childbirth, um, that are, uh, were originally genes that were viral genes that integrated into our genomes when the virus infected us, uh, and then were passed on from one generation to the next, and actually we evolved to use those genes uh, for core functions. Most of this DNA is just junk DNA. We don't use it for anything. But it's really fascinating that a large fraction of our genome is viral DNA. Uh, We'll learn about how how that happens later on in the course. Um, But so viruses are actually directly influencing our evolution as humans uh, by contributing genetic information to us. But I think the more intuitive way that viruses shape our evolution is that they are are major dominant predator. They uh, cause mortality even in modern times. Uh, a lot of people obviously die from viruses um, or other pathogens. Um, this is uh, malaria, which is actually a eukaryotic, so single-cellular eukaryote. Um, and uh, we know that these pathogens uh, put selective pressure on us and cause us to evolve. Uh, often in intro biology classes, uh, you learn about how malaria Uh, selects in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa for a um, a mutation that causes cells to be sickle-shaped. This mutation, if it's in a person's genome and it's heterozygotic, um, it's actually beneficial because it doesn't have this deleterious effect of creating sickle-cell-shaped red blood cells um, and, but it also, cha- it does alter the cell in a way that this malarial parasite, which infects red blood cells, is less able to infect, and so it provides resistance to those people. But it turns out that if that um, allele is homozygotic in a person, then it creates these sickle cell-shaped cells, it's very bad, um, and it can cause a lot of, um, a lot of pain and, and premature death. Um, but what I'm just pointing out is this is a classic example where we have evidence that our um, pathogens are applying pressure and selecting for alleles that otherwise seem like they would be deleterious, or removed from our population, but they persist because of this ongoing pressure on our populations to be resistant to things like malaria. So that's a classic example of how pathogens are shaping uh, human genetic variation and our evolution. But it turns out in recent years, as our data is getting better and better, as we have more and more genome sequence, we we can begin to look at what other mutations in our genome are likely there because it it gives us an advantage in dealing with our viruses. Um, And this incredible study that we'll talk about came out a couple years ago where they found that 30% of the adaptive amino acid changes in our genomes can be attributed to um, avoiding viruses that viruses are our main selective agents and has really shaped a lot of the genetic variation in our, in our genomes. So we'll have a lecture also on coevolution between pathogens and us and how pathogens are directly um, influencing our own evolution and the genetic variation in our populations. So I think, you know, I'm making the case here that um, it's important to study the evolution of infectious disease. Um, and uh, there is a growing realization that this is important. There's lots of books that have come out in recent years about this. Um, however, there's just not as much progress as I would have hoped. Um, and one of the one of the statistics that's always kind of disturbing uh, is that, you know, uh, the fact if you look at faculty at and medical schools, rarely are those faculty evolutionary biologists. Um, and so this is actually old data, but this, this still stands today where somebody looked at the faculty members of a bunch of different medical schools and plotted just a histogram of, um, so this is just number of, of faculty that are evolutionary biologists. Um, and this is, um, per medical school. And so many medical schools have zero, um, many, um, uh, Sorry, I um, let me let me go back um, and explain this better. This is a histogram. This axis is number of medical schools, not number of faculty. This is the axis is number of medical schools, um, and this is the number of faculty that are evolutionary biologists at those medical schools. And so there's one medical school that's the outlier that has eight faculty that are evolutionary biologists, but most medical schools, um, you know, in this in this data set. Of 33 medical schools, um, something like 28 of the 30, uh, 33 medical schools uh, have zero faculty that are evolutionary biologists. So this is just a reminder that you know it's still not widely accepted that this that the understanding the evolutionary process is important for understanding um, how to treat diseases. But I will certainly make the case throughout that it that it is important. Um, what is really funny to me is that. Uh, Doctors or uh, biomedical researchers uh, tend to even avoid using the word evolutionary biology. So a lot of them, um, so what we're we're comparing here are studies that were published in evolutionary journals and studies that were published in biomedical journals. And a, a synonym for evolution is often emergence. Now this is a lot sloppier of a term Emergence just means it kind of arises. Does it doesn't arise from a genetic mutation? Is uh, not an adaptation? That's not captured in this, um, in this term here, uh, but you know the term evolution means that there's a genetic change that is inherited that causes an evolutionary change, uh, and so it's very specific, and so if you are talking about um, genetic mutations and evolution, you should use the word evolution because it's more precise, um, but what we see is that biomedical journals avoid, uh, people that publish in them avoid using the word evolution and they substitute in emergence. Um, and so it actually appears that there's an aversion to even using the term evolution. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's obviously very critical. There are centers uh, that are being developed uh, to study evolutionary biology uh, that are actually at medical schools. This is the logo for the first center that opened in a medical school to study evolutionary biology. Um, This is at the University of Pittsburgh, um, founded in uh, 2017. So my hope with this course is just that um, people, that everyone listening uh, understands how important it is to understand the evolutionary process, to understand disease. Uh, And if you are going on to careers in biomedical research or in medicine, that you're always thinking about, you know, how things might be changing, how things might be mutating, and uh, to develop strategies that will help uh, mitigate the effects of, you know, the, the, the bad effects of uh, evolution of resistance and evolution of pathogenicity and so forth.